Well, you may have brought a Bible with you tonight, maybe not. If you have one with you, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2 in it? Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, no worries, it'll be on the screen behind me. This is a very Christmassy kind of passage in a sense, not that it tells the story per se of Jesus' birth. But it gives us sort of an x-ray behind the scenes of what was going on as we read that story earlier of his birth, of angels sing as we've sung of those very things tonight, what we read in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and Luke 2, the nativity story. Here it is in the background. Here it is behind the scenes, you could say. Philippians 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What great humility and servantry, what great exaltation. Christmas time has a reputation for being a season of selflessness, of giving, goodwill. I wonder sometimes how much we might be fooling ourselves, though. How good are we, really, at self-forgetfulness? Do we even want it? Even if Christmas time has more selflessness and giving and goodwill than other times of the year, it doesn't exactly erase all the self-consumption and self-promotion that so often peeks out in our lives and rears its, e- e- its ugly head here or there. It seems like we live in a time and culture when we, we seem rather open and comfortable with self-promotion. Musicians pulling shocking stunts to get more headlines, to sell more albums, and then openly acknowledging the stunt as promotion. Pro athletes often these days speak of themselves in third person as they unblushingly tout themselves as the best in the league or the best in history. Today, did you know you can pay money to raise the number of Facebook friends you have on your page? You can pay to have fake friends. And then you look like you're more popular than you are. Sadly, I know pastors who've done this. Maybe closer to home for most of us here, maybe we just do a little name dropping here or there to make sure everyone knows we know that guy. Maybe at the water cooler at work, we practice the humble brag, make sure everyone knows that project was ours, or simply just complain about how much work we have to do, which really isn't a 
complaint as much as it is oftentimes a pat on the back because we're so important. Dare I mention the invention of the selfie? I mean, we used to blush about such things. We don't anymore, do we? Oh, I know, every culture, every age has been concerned with self, and so some of this is nothing new. And yet, we do have some interesting and new and some not-so-subtle ways these days of expressing self. All of us think of self-promotion or self-exaltation as a problem in the broader culture, just not with us. It's not us, it's them. It's always them. We're very good at spotting self-promotion in others. And we rightly have disdain for it. We don't like the taste of it when we see it. At least when it's a different form than the one we use or when it's a different degree than what we're used to. None of us, though, is so selfless that there's never, there's never any form of self-promotion or temptation to defend self or clear up reputation. We're all concerned with self and how others perceive us. None of us can say that we have achieved self-forgetfulness and selflessness. Well, what a downer this is turning out to be, huh? (laughs) Merry Christmas. But you see, we got to understand something of the problem before we can understand how Philippians 2 is the solution. The problem isn't just out there with them who do that. The problem is within all of us. It's a problem of self. Philippians 2 shows us the beauty and the glory of humility and selflessness and sacrifice. But it's not just a moral lesson. It's not just a corrective to our culture. Philippians 2 tells a story of far greater importance than how we should live. And it's not just a story of one man's noble sacrifice. It simply shows us God. It shows us Christ. It shows the solution, the hope of this world. It shows us his unthinkable humility and sacrifice. And it also shows us his proper and unparalleled exaltation. Only he bears the name that is above every name. And he didn't give it to himself. He glorified the Father, it says here. And the Father gave him a name that is above every name. God has highly exalted him. Like super exalted him is literally what it means in the original language. He's been super exalted. There's exaltation out there. Varying degrees of it here and there in our lives, in our culture, what we see in others, but Christ is the only one who is super exalted. Why is Jesus the exalted Lord? I think there are five reasons in this passage. The first is that he he has full divinity. He's the exalted Lord because of his full divinity. We read in verse 6, though he was in the form of God before Bethlehem, before the birth, and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was equal with God before he was ever born. He's eternal. 
And he's fully divine. He didn't have a spark of divinity. He didn't grow into his divinity. He didn't fan the flame of divinity. He was fully divine. Equality with God wasn't something he had to reach for or strive for or one day achieve in his own strength. He just was. We saw this on Sunday as a church, that he's the self-existent one. And he bears a name that is above every name, verse 9 says. It goes on. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now what is the name that is above every name that Jesus bears? You look at these verses and you could see the name Jesus there. And it means, literally, God saves. Maybe that's the name that is above every name. Well, meaningful as it is, it was a common name in Jesus' time. You see the phrase Christ there, Jesus Christ. And you think, Christ, maybe that's it. Well, yeah, but that means Messiah, and that really is significant. And Jesus is a capital M Messiah, but others were called Messiah, others were called anointed one. Jesus is uniquely so, but he is the only person who is also Lord. Not Lord like a term of honor. Lord where you know, we should pay him homage. It's not just a title. When it says here, Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord is the name that is above every name because Lord here in this passage should point us back to the Old Testament where God's personal name was revealed. Bear with me for some technical detail. In Exodus chapter 3, God and Moses are speaking. God's going to free the Israelites from Pharaoh and Egypt. God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses says, who should I say told me this? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. Which sounds like he maybe avoided the question. I just am who I am. I'm not telling you who I am. But no, that turns out to be his personal name. His self-disclosed name, it's Yahweh in Hebrew. We would transliterate it in English with just four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. 2,600 times in the Old Testament that word Yahweh or a form of it is used. In our English Bibles in the Old Testament, we spot it not with the word Yahweh, but with Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time we see that, behind that is God's personal name, Yahweh, I am. In Jesus' day, they had a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in that Greek translation, they did just similar to what we do in our English Bibles. They used Lord, the Greek word kurios or kyrios, for Lord, for any time that Yahweh was used of God. His personal name. So the people in Jesus' day, people in Paul's day who knew their Old Testaments, were very familiar with Lord equaling Yahweh. Not every time in the New Testament that we see the word Lord is it referring to God's Old Testament personal name, Yahweh. Sometimes people call Jesus Lord and they just mean important guy. They don't, know, they don't yet know of his deity. But other times, like this in Philippians 2, there are enough clues in the passage that we see 
that this is pointing us backwards to God's personal name. It's telling us that Jesus is fully divine. Secondly, Jesus is the exalted Lord because of his lowly incarnation. Notice the juxtaposition. He was in the form of God and didn't consider equality with God something to be reached for, strived for, earned, or, or, or one day received. He was God, and yet, verse 7 says, he made himself nothing. He was born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form. These phrases are, are what we call the incarnation. That's a theological term. You might not be familiar with it, but you, you basically know it. You know when you order some, some good Mexican food, it might have the word carne in it. Chili con carne. Carne's good. Carne's meat. Carne's flesh. So incarnation is Jesus in flesh. He's God in the flesh. God incarnate. That process or event where God took on flesh, became a man, we call that the incarnation. And that's what Christmas is a celebration of. All the implications or, or promises before attached to this moment in time when God came to earth, took on flesh for our salvation and for his glory. Which means that Jesus now is and forever will be fully God and fully human. Oh, I know, it blows our minds, but it's true. In one person, you have, you have fully God and fully human. It might not sound that humble or sacrificial to you that God took on flesh. You might wonder why I would word it as because of his lowly incarnation. What's so lowly about being human? We're top of the food chain, right? A fish doesn't think it's so bad being a fish, but I wouldn't want to trade with him. Right? I know what it's like to be a human. He doesn't know what it's like to be a, I mean, a human. All he knows is being a fish. All we know is being human. So we think, what's the big deal that God became a man? I like being a man. Why wouldn't he? But we can't comprehend the splendor and the glory and the rights and the privileges of being divine without limitations, without suffering, without pain. We can't imagine the distance from the divine in heaven to the human in this earth. No one has ever or ever will transcend that distance from that height to this depth. Jesus is the exalted Lord because he willingly took on flesh and united himself with humanity for eternity. Thirdly, Jesus is the exalted Lord because of his humble servantry. He didn't just become any man, he became a certain kind of man. Verse 7 says, He made himself nothing. You see that in the, the poverty of his birth? You see that in his simple carpentry work? You see that, you see that in, in the fact that he had nowhere to lay his head? made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. 
We see him throughout his life teaching on his servantry and modeling his servantry. We see in Matthew 20, he said, I didn't come to be served like all other kings, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, we have a perfect example of Jesus' humble servantry when he washed his disciples' feet. But, but not only is it a, a perfect example of what we're reading about in, in Philippians 2, John 13 also follows the same pattern and uses similar language as we see here in Philippians 2. Listen, and listen for the similarities here. It says there in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, and was going back to God, he rose from supper with his disciples. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He put on the form of a servant. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. That sounds quaint to us. We get pedicures today. I don't, but some do. In those days, there's a lot of sand, and they wore sandals. And by necessity, you had to wash your feet, or someone else had to, when you came into someone's house, especially when you sat down for a meal. And it was part of the, the culture. There's a, a clear hierarchy going on in in who washes the feet? The one who washes the feet is lower than the one who gets his feet washed by a servant. And Jesus takes on the role of the lower and the servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. Jesus said to them, as he was doing so, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? No doubt they didn't yet fully understand what he had done to them. They're probably thinking merely in terms of example. But what Jesus is doing here is foreshadowing his servant-like sacrifice that will come on the cross. He's showing for them a stooping that is shocking so that it's just like a seedling of the sacrifice that will come when he dies on the cross for them. That leads to the fourth thing back in Philippians 2. Jesus is the unparalleled, exalted Lord because of his sacrificial death. He wasn't just a man. He didn't just take on the form of a servant but he gave a sacrifice, sacrificial death. It says in verse 8, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is what he meant in Matthew 20 when he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life at the cross. To give my life as a payment to give my life as a substitutionary sacrifice, to die in your place, to take your punishment. We learn that God is not just an exalted God or a humble God, but God is a saving God. He's a saving God. 
In Isaiah 40, 45 rather, we see some of the same language that Paul uses here in Philippians 2. No doubt he has Isaiah 45 in mind when he writes Philippians 2. And there in Isaiah 45, we see not only Yahweh God as the exalted one, the eternal one, the creator, but we also see him as the savior. Listen, Isaiah 45, it says, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. You see how exalted he is, lofty he is. God himself says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And here it is. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's what Paul refers to in Philippians 2. But amazingly, Isaiah 45 was about Yahweh God. And Paul freely takes that language and applies it on this Man from Nazareth, Jesus, who is God. He is a Savior. And he came to die a sacrificial death. So the salvation that's happening in Isaiah 45, the salvation from this lofty, exalted God, well, right from there, there's a straight line that takes us all the way to Philippians 2 and gives us more information. He saves through the cross. And on account of that, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Jesus' cross is a supreme example of sacrifice, of servantry, of turning the other cheek, of, of suffering righteously. It's an example, it's a model. But it is first a sacrifice for sins. It is first salvation. It's not just a model. That's not enough. We want our kids to have good models, don't we? we? Hopefully, if you're a good parent, you look around, you see the culture, you see people in the culture, you, you point out to your kids, no, 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 you hear that? You hear what he said? You see that quote? That's not us. We're not going to be like that. We don't do that. You see this guy? You see how he doesn't take the glory, but he deflects the glory, and he compliments his teammates? Peyton Manning's pretty good at this, you know? We want our kids to have good models and to follow those models. And Jesus is a good model. But models are not enough. We've already seen the problem is far deeper than just behavioral transformation. We need a Savior. Lastly, Jesus is the unparalleled, exalted Lord because of his glorious resurrection and ascension. He didn't just die and now we remember him for that grand old story of his birth and his life and his teaching and his death. And that's the end of it. But verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Now that's not explicit about the resurrection of Jesus, but it certainly infers it. God didn't just exalt a dead guy. He raised him from the dead. And the New Testament speaks of Jesus' resurrection as God's 
stamp of approval, his confirming testimony of what Jesus said, of what Jesus did, of who he is, that the sacrifice had been made. The resurrection is God's, yep, there it is, amen. He is the one. So the resurrection wasn't just necessary because he can't stay dead. Uh, It wasn't just part of the plan because we'll show them. No, the resurrection is the mark of God's confirmation. And thus it is a mark of Jesus' exaltation. The resurrection signals that Jesus has God's domain, his authority, that he's the judge and he reigns. You might say, well, Ryan, whether he was raised from the dead or not, it doesn't look like he reigns today. It doesn't look like he's the king of the universe. It doesn't look like every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And I'd say, yeah, you're right, I know. But we have an explanation in Hebrews 2. There it says, quoting the Old Testament, that God made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels. Humility, servantry. And yet you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now here's the explanation about that. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. It seems like the problem's just getting worse as I'm reading this, right? Everything's under his control, everything is under his feet, then why is it so bad? Why are they so wrong? Why does it seem so broken? Well, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Is Christ reigning right now over all? Yes. Does he have his father's rule and reign? Does he have this universe's dominion? He does indeed. We don't yet see it. There's more to come. One day we will see it. One day there'll be a reckoning. One day his rule, which is now invisible, will be manifest, undeniably so, and universally so. So right now we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, and we believe through faith he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He reigns. Abraham Kuyper, back about 100 years ago, he was a prime minister in the Netherlands and started the Free University of Amsterdam. And at that commencement speech, the first year of the Free University of Amsterdam, he gave this famous quote now in the middle of the sermon. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. Every inch in all the universe, every person, everything, Jesus says, mine, mine. Oh, they haven't yet reckoned with it yet, perhaps. But Jesus says it. And one day there will be a reckoning. He has universal authority. He will bring final judgment He deserves complete worship, and he has unsurpassed glory. It says, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God or Lord. Every knee, every tongue, every. 
Adolf Hitler will bow and he will confess. Carl Sagan will bow. Mohammed will bow. The Dalai Lama will bow. You will bow. Now, I mean, either throw Jesus all up, just ball this whole Bible up, this, this thing, this, well, Christmas too. Or believe this, Jesus Christ is Lord, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. You say, well, why doesn't he do it now then? Why does that happen now? Why doesn't he just say, all right, everyone, this is happening right now. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Well, I don't know, but are you in a hurry? Uh, if you haven't yet bowed, if you haven't yet confessed, then don't you just take this as his patience and his mercy that this hasn't happened yet? There are only two possible confessions. Either you confess him now, joyfully, willingly, in faith, and unto your salvation. That's what it means to be a Christian. Or you will confess him only in that last day and only in shame and terror. And when you confess that he is Lord, you will also acknowledge that you've been suppressing that very thing and pushed against that very reality your whole life. It will be a self-condemning confession. Jesus talked like this in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father. And Romans 10 talks about the, the more positive side of this, the more more optimistic confession that we pray you, you embrace. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, but that, that belief wants to make it verbal and, and outward. So with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We pray you have confessed Christ as the one and the only. We pray you are saved. Philippians 2 is not only a corrective to our selfish ways. It's not just an example for us to try to get somewhere close to. It's a window into our salvation. And it recounts for us how our selfishness is can be atoned for. Really, that's what sin is, right? At root, what is sin? It's self. It's self-exaltation. It's putting self on the throne. It's saying of these things in my life, mine. It's saying of ourselves, our wills, mine. But God says, Jesus says, mine. Only when our sins are atoned for then is Jesus also an example for us to follow in a beautiful and glorious example of sacrifice and humility and servantry and selflessness. Only then will there be later exaltation. Would you bow with me? I'm going to read several paragraphs of something that was written more than a century ago anonymously. I ask you to bow and prayerfully ponder this. Imagine this. Think through this. 
Pray and talk to the Lord about it. Respond to it in your heart and your mind. 2,000 years ago, a man was born contrary to the laws of life. He lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He was the child of a peasant woman and worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book, never held public office. He never went to college and never set foot in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He possessed none of the usual traits that accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. In his infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if on pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed tomb. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he's the centerpiece of the human race. He never wrote a book, yet no library could hold all the books written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast as having as many students. He never practiced psychiatry, but he's healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of past leaders have long been forgotten. The great men of Greece and Rome are dusty names in the libraries. Scientists, philosophers, kings, generals, they've come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Herod could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands alone on the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, feared by devils, as the living personal Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, and the Savior of the world. This is the Christ of the Bible. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the true Christ of the Christian faith. This is the one in whom we have believed. He and he alone is Lord and Savior. Oh, that we would tonight, Lord, confess Jesus. And confess before we, well, we're forced to confess. Oh, that we would tonight bow, bow in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills. Oh, that we would tonight exalt him, and not just once, not just once for salvation, Lord, but help us to exalt him, not just at Christmas, not just when we meet together as a church, but in all and forever, because his glory and his reign knows no bounds. Help us to rest, knowing that he is on his throne And the end is as good as done 
it's sure. He will reign forever and ever. We thank you for the glory of his coming. And help us to see more of that truth, Lord, as we ponder tonight and tomorrow his birth, his coming, his living, his dying, and his glorious resurrection. Amen.